don't have enough time to sit down and read all the best Bitcoin articles? Well, let us read them for you. This is a Crypto Economy Quick Read. Welcome back to the Crypto Economy Podcast. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read everything there is to read about Bitcoin. Well, I'm, I'm almost there. I, I take that back. The guy who has read like a whole bunch of stuff and is trying to catch up with that last little bit that he needs to cover to have read everything about Bitcoin. That's me. That's this show. Welcome to the Crypto Economy Podcast. So we are continuing today with part two of How Many Wrongs Make a Right, which is uh, Jameson Lopp's piece that was published on Bitcoin Magazine, all about the ridiculous set of events around Craig Wright and his um, continuous efforts to try and convince everyone that he is Satoshi Nakamoto, which has uh, failed, in my opinion, pretty miraculously. And uh, Lop has done an amazing job compiling the extensive list of lies and uh, cover-ups and manipulations and uh, just really just embarrassments uh, of this entire multi-year, what are we at, like four years, five years now almost that he has uh, tried to keep this up. So it's been since 2015. Um and we will be closing that out today. If you have not listened to part one, that's yesterday's episode. So uh, go back. We are jumping right into the middle of this article. So uh, don't forget to check that out uh, before you uh, break into this one or you'll be lost. All right. So with that, let's jump right back into part two of how many wrongs make a right. The million Bitcoin question. Why bother? Nick Kubrilovich posted an explanation that makes sense given the evidence at hand. His post has been deleted, but the archived version can be viewed here. Link. Prior to his outing as Satoshi, Kubrilovich says, Wright had been involved in a tax rebate scheme against the Australian government. Wright has operated under a number of different legal entities, Hotwire, D. Morgan, Cloudcroft, Panopticrypt, CoinX, Denarius, Tulip Trading, Craig Wright R&D, Permanent Success Limited, Information Defense, Integers, Global Institute for Cybersecurity Research, and dozens of others, link provided, as mentioned on page 53 of this court transcript, an administrator's report for Hotwire in 2014. This report details three relevant points. One, how Hotwire operated. Quote, The company's main activity was the acquisition of various e-learning and e-payment software and undertaking research and development work in respect of this software and for software owned by related entities. End quote. Two, how Hotwire was allegedly funded. Quote, the directors have advised that $30 million was subscribed to by the shareholders in paid-up capital, and this was injected via Bitcoins, end quote. Three, how that funding was spent. 
Quote, the company applied its equity as follows. $29 million to acquire software from the Wright Family Trust and $1 million to fund day-to-day -day trading activities. End quote. What Wright did was establish a company for the purpose of carrying out research and development on e-learning software it had acquired from Wright's own trust. Wright would inject $30 million in Bitcoin to fund the company, $29 million of which would be paid to Wright's trust to acquire the software, and $1 million of which would fund operational costs, including an office in Sydney and 40 employees. The purpose for the structure becomes clear in the next action the company takes. Quote, Further to incurring a range of expenses, the company lodged its GST return for the September 2013 quarter, claiming a GST refund of $3.1 million, the GST refund. After various discussions and correspondence, the ATO issued a notice to the company on January 20th of 2014 notifying that it intended to withhold the refund pending further verification of transactions and the treatment of Bitcoin. End quote. The sales tax, or GST, component of the $29 million invested by Wright into the company was eligible for a refund. Thus, by shuffling around bitcoins between entities you control, it's possible to trigger a sales tax refund in real cash. However, it's unclear whether $30 million in bitcoin was ever shuffled around in the first place. Another Wright entity, DeMorgan, made the largest ever R&D tax concession claim in Australia, as per its own press release. I haven't been able to find any evidence to support this claim, however. The R&D tax concession is a program in Australia where companies investing in R&D are eligible for a 45% tax refund on each dollar spent. According to reporting by Forbes, the supercomputers that were claimed to be part of this spending didn't exist. So it is possible that the refund request could be construed as an attempt to make a false claim. As reported by The New Yorker, quote, Receivership documents, Link provided, explaining Hotwire's apparent insolvency indicate that Wright was claiming losses due to the collapse of Mt. Gox. This reference to the 2014 crash of the MT Gox Bitcoin exchange shows that Wright has been trying to explain his Bitcoin losses to the authorities for some time, end quote. Why does Wright say he is Satoshi? Kabrilovich theorizes that Wright simply spun a web of lies that was too complex to unwind, so now he has to keep taking it further. Quote, it suited Wright to be Nakamoto when he needed to raise money from investors or to talk his way out of a problem. Nakamoto, as most know, is sitting on billions of dollars worth of Bitcoin, end quote. On the other hand, Kabrilovich posits that Wright might not have wanted his alleged identity as Satoshi Nakamoto to become more widely known, lest he eventually, quote, bump into somebody who might challenge him on the claim and require some form of hard proof. Quote, In terms of why the story of Wright being Nakamoto was made public, I can offer a few theories. The first is that one too many people found out, and one of them, potentially a disgruntled employee or investor, decided to leak the news as an act of revenge. The second theory is that Wright, knowing it was over for his companies and that the authorities were closing in, 
concocted the leak himself as the first step towards a new life in London as Satoshi Nakamoto. Wright fled Australia and has not returned, end quote. According to O'Hagan, quote, A few weeks before the raid on Craig Wright's house, when his name still hadn't ever been publicly associated with Satoshi Nakamoto, I got an email from a Los Angeles lawyer called Jimmy Huynh from the firm Davis Wright Tremaine, self-described as a one-stop shop for companies in entertainment, technology, advertising, sports, and other industries. Huynh told me that they were looking to contract me to write the life of Satoshi Nakamoto. Quote, My client has acquired life story rights from the true person behind the pseudonym Satoshi Nakamoto, the creator of the Bitcoin protocol. Quote, the lawyer wrote, The story will be of great interest to the public and we expect the book project will generate significant publicity and media coverage once Satoshi's true identity is revealed. End quote. I found this snippet to be particularly interesting because Jimmy Wynn, an attorney who specialized in entertainment and intellectual property, went on to become the CEO of InChain, a tech firm, while prior CEO Stephen Matthews became chairman of the board. Robert McGregor, the founder and CEO of Canada-based money transfer firm InTrust, who met right through Matthews, claims that the plan for InChain was not to build technology, but rather to attain a huge exit by selling intellectual property. Wright was allegedly paid a significant amount of money to, quote, come out as Satoshi, according to O'Hagan in The Satoshi Affair. Quote, After initial skepticism, and in spite of a slight aversion to Wright's manner, McGregor was persuaded and struck a deal with Wright, signed on June 29, 2015. McGregor says he felt sure that Wright was Bitcoin's legendary missing father, and he told me it was his idea, later in the drafting of the deal, to insist that Satoshi's life rights be included as part of the agreement. Wright's companies were so deeply in debt that the deal appeared to him like a rescue plan, so he agreed to everything, without, it seems, really examining what he would have to do. Within a few months, according to evidence later given to me by Matthews and McGregor, the deal would cost McGregor's company $15 million. Continued, That's right, Matthew said in February this year. When we signed the deal, $1.5 million was given to Wright's lawyers, but my main job was to set up an engagement with the new lawyers and transfer Wright's intellectual property to Encrypt, a newly formed subsidiary of Entrust. The deal had the following components clear the outstanding debts that were preventing Wright's business from getting back on its feet, and work with the new lawyers on getting the agreements in place for the transfer of any non-corporate intellectual property, and work with lawyers to get Craig's story rights. From that point on, the Satoshi revelation would be part of the deal. It was the cornerstone of the commercialization plan, Matthew said, with about $10 million sunk into the Australian debts and setting up in London continued. The plan was always clear to men behind Encrypt. They would bring Wright to London, set up a research and development center for him, with about 30 staff working under him. They would complete the work on his inventions and patent applications, he appeared to have hundreds of them, and the whole lot would be sold as the work of Satoshi Nakamoto, who would be unmasked as part of the project. Once packaged, Matthews and McGregor planned to sell the intellectual property for upwards of a billion dollars 
McGregor later told me he was speaking to Google and Uber, as well as to a number of Swiss banks. The plan was to package it all up and sell it, Matthews told me. The plan was never to operate it. End quote. But who was the mysterious benefactor funding all of this activity? Signs point to a man named Calvin Eyre, a Canadian billionaire best known for founding the online gambling company Bodog. Once again, according to The Satoshi Affair, quote, Calvin Eyre is one of the topics the team routinely went dark on. When I first met Wright, he called him the man in Antigua. McGregor never mentioned him at all during our early meetings. When I later told him that Ramona had mentioned a big man in Antigua, he said he didn't mind talking about him but didn't bring his name up again. When, in February this year, they took Wright to Antigua for a pep talk, I emailed Matthews to ask if I could come too, and he didn't reply. Wright, in a low moment, later asked me if I'd told McGregor they were the ones who let the cat out of the bag about Air. I said it wasn't them. Air's name had first been mentioned to me by Matthews. The Antigua meeting was being arranged when I went out for dinner with Matthews, and he referred to Air freely without ever asking that it be off the record. McGregor never went into detail about Ayer's involvement, but both men's regular visits to Antigua made me wonder about the extent of the connection. Matthews, explicit as usual, always spoke about Ayer as if he was the capo da tutti capi of the entire affair, though I have no other evidence that Ayer was anything but an interested observer. Interestingly, Encrypt's only shareholder, one share worth one pound, is Encrypt Holdings, registered in Antigua, end quote. According to this 2017 Reuters article, InChain Holdings was sold to Malta-based high-tech private equity fund Sikov. The website listed in this press release for said fund, however, no longer exists. Quote, InChain said in an emailed response to questions from Reuters that neither Air nor Wright had a stake in it before or after the sale. It said the company previously acquired Wright's assets and intellectual property, and he now held the post of chief scientist, end quote. Inchain's statement could mean several things. Perhaps neither man owns a stake directly, but they do indirectly through a series of other legal entities. Check the diagram provided below to get an idea of the bigger picture. It could also mean that if Wright had any stake, he has already sold out and now is just trying to fulfill the master plan to sell intellectual property. Or another theory is that he's just trying to run out the clock, making it look like he's trying to do so. According to the Reuters article, quote, a person close to the deal said $300 million had been invested in InChain, but it was not clear over what period of time, end quote. An intriguing quote from Matthews regarding the investors, quote, the people that I work with are capable of deciding this was a $30 million bad decision and write it off, end quote. An article published by Elmo Keep in Splinter summarized O'Hagan's The Satoshi Affair. Quote, Overall, the piece adds credence to the accusation that Wright perpetuated a vast and complex fraud to convince the world that he is Satoshi Nakamoto in order to get out from under millions of dollars worth of debts he had accumulated in Australia with the tax office and other creditors. And if it is a scam, 
It now appears to have included a large number of co-conspirators and or victims, including the media outlets who were used to facilitate Wright's outing, end quote. The article seems to suggest that Wright may be performing a sophisticated form of advance fee scam, or affinity scam, whereby he uses his credibility to convince investors to part with their money for the promise of future returns. An alternative theory is that Stephen Matthews is a linchpin to the arrangement mentioned earlier, and that he brought Calvin Eyre into this particular scheme. According to O'Hagan, Matthews is an Australian IT expert whom Wright had known for 10 years, since they both worked for the online gambling site Centerbet. Matthews later went on to work for Bodog. Matthews was also a director for Wright's company De Morgan, so they likely remained in close contact. In The Satoshi Affair, Matthews is quoted as saying, quote, I get what I get paid by Calvin Eyre. Calvin is the only allegiance I have, then and now. End quote. If you look into Eyre's background, he has been building an offshore gambling empire that takes advantage of jurisdictional arbitrage in order to offer services that, when combined, are arguably illegal in some countries. By spreading around his operations, he's been able to not only maintain them in such an adversarial environment, but to grow them into a huge operation. He's a shrewd businessman who is well-versed in exploiting legal loopholes. As Ayer once described his operations in a Forbes interview, quote, We run a business that can't actually be described as gambling in each country we operate in, but when you add it all together, it's internet gambling, end quote. Court records show that Ayer's not without his own problems, though. As he was a fugitive from the IRS and other U.S. authorities due to money laundering charges filed in 2012, during the five years he'd spent on the run, U.S. authorities seized over $68 million in assets from him, but eventually allowed him to plead to a misdemeanor charge in return for dropping all of the felony charges. In my opinion, Air is in a situation where a censorship-resistant and unseizable cryptocurrency is highly desirable. Even when he first began operating in the 1990s, his gambling site was one of the few that didn't use third parties like Western Union to transfer money. It sent checks directly to users. If I was Air, I'd want all of my gambling sites to use cryptocurrency, and I'd want to store a significant portion of my wealth in cryptocurrency. Why would Air choose to go the Bitcoin Cash and later Bitcoin Satoshi Vision route rather than just using the already well-established Bitcoin network? Was he convinced that BSV was better suited for gambling or that he'd be better positioned to influence BSV's development? Or was it that Air was already incredibly invested in Wright's success and was ambivalent about the technical details? Or could Air's mining operation simply have been a useful way for him to launder money? Freshly minted coins are pretty much impossible to tie to illegal activity. Electricity goes in and untainted money comes out. Economically rational SHA-256 miners should mine the most profitable network since switching costs are fairly low. We can observe from the charts below that BSV miners appear to be not economically rational. They are leaving money on the table, so to speak. While BCH miners appear to drop off the BCH network and probably switch to mining BTC when it becomes more profitable to do so, BSV miners have been consistently mining at a loss in comparison to if they were mining BTC instead. This begs the question, are BSV miners actually irrational? 
Or is there another factor at play that makes it rational for them to pass over an opportunity for greater profits? One plausible explanation is that as of April 26, 2019, over 80% of the BSV hash rate is controlled by two pools, CoinGeek, owned by Air, and BMG Pool, owned by Enchain, and that they are mining suboptimally in order to keep up appearances of strength. This reasoning makes sense given that BSV is built upon an ideology driven by Nakamoto consensus. Quote, he who controls the hash rate controls the network. End quote. He's got a chart here of the daily Bitcoin Cash profitability against Bitcoin and then the daily Bitcoin SV profitability against Bitcoin. Uh, and you just see that uh, the mining power is clearly shifting heavily on Bitcoin Cash to keep parity with uh, profits, whereas Bitcoin Satoshi's vision is basically just off the charts and doing its own thing. In the chart below, an internet sleuth on Reddit theorized about a possible web of relationships. Begin graphic. Uh, it's showing connections between all the different companies and subsidiaries uh, with Calvin Air and uh, Craig Wright. Uh, I definitely recommend you to check that out, um, but... It is way too complicated to actually go into an attempt to explain, so I will just direct you to the Bitcoin Magazine article uh, so that you can check it out. Uh, it's pretty interesting. End graphic. All right, the next section is titled Patents. Uh, before we get into that, let's go ahead and hit our sponsor, and we'll come right back. Patents. Wright has been prolific in his efforts to file patents for other blockchain and computer science-related work. These patents would be much more interesting to potential investors if filed by the man behind Satoshi, possibly serving as motivation for Wright's claims. Wright has been filing patents for a few years under EITC Holdings, InChain Holdings, NCIP Holding, and InTrust. Filings of his have been found at the Intellectual Property Office of the United Kingdom, European Patent Office, U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, and Taiwan Intellectual Property Office. A now-deleted site called BitcoinPatentReport.com detailed some of the activity. At the time of his writing, a total of 264 patents by Wright's companies have been published by the British Patent Office, while the European Patent Office shows 167 applications for in-chain. Patent Scope sees 296 applications, while Google Patents shows a total of 363. EITC Holdings, 73 filings. InChain Holdings, 145 filings in Britain, 174 filings in Europe. NCIP Holdings, 7 filings. And InTrust, 0 filings. On March 7, 2019, InChain CEO Jimmy Wynn wrote that InChain had filed its 666th patent application. Note that filings are generally published with a time lag of up to 18 months, so we'll have to wait another year to know for sure. Tweet by Craig Wright I have just lodged paper 700. Edison accumulated 2,332 patents worldwide, with 1,093 patents in the USA for his inventions. My target to beat this is May of next year. Have a nice day. I am. End tweet. Tweet by Craig Wright. 
You can think all you like that I do not deserve, but you do. Whoop-de-doo. I will have papers for a thousand patents filed by the end of November, and that is only the start. I am working more than I can imagine, and I still work 80-plus hour weeks. I am doing my fourth doctorate, so... End quote. These tweets with specific claims of patent applications filed are interesting because they conflict with the number claimed by InChain's CEO in March of 2019. Wright claims 700 patents filed as of June 2018 and 1,000 filed as of December 2018, while Wynn claims 666 as of March 2019. While InChain may not be filing as many applications as Wright claims, it certainly is filing a lot, but filing applications is not the same as having patents granted. From a cursory review of some of the applications, it appears that patent examiners are finding prior art for many of InChain's claimed novel inventions. You can see some of the patent examiner opinions here. Take, for example, Wright's patent application for a threshold signature scheme. The patent examiner determined that 31 of the 34 claims of novelty were, in fact, not novel. Or this patent application for UTXO time locks, for which the patent examiner determined 14 of the 17 claims were not novel. In February 2017, Wright submitted a patent titled, quote, Agent-Based Turing Complete Transactions Integrating Feedback Within a Blockchain System, end quote basically trying to patent any computer program that uses a blockchain as its data store. In a Medium post dated September 4, 2018, Jonathan Tumim completed an in-depth analysis of Wright's proposal and demonstrated ways in which P2Pool, Ethereum, and Counterparty could be considered prior art. Evasion of Criticism On June 30, 2018, Wright blocked me on Twitter and made this post. Tweet by Craig Wright, slowly filtering the losers and trolls. Oh, and none coming back. In tweet. I found this to be a bit odd because I had muted him many months before and stopped interacting with him after I challenged one of his technical claims about the node network graph of Bitcoin Cash. Instead of answering my straightforward question, he countered with a bombardment of questions of his own that did not appear particularly relevant. Tweet by Jamison Lopp. Given that it's not possible to query a Bitcoin node to determine what peers it's connected to, I'm incredibly interested to see you show your work for how you calculated this number, in tweet. In the following weeks and months, he continued blocking quite a few people, even those who supported Bitcoin Cash, perhaps in anticipation of in-chain planning to push a contentious hard fork for Bitcoin SV. Tweet by Tom Harding blocked by Professor Faustus for asking one of his minions if he thought it was okay for participation in the Bitcoin Cash network to require a patent license. End tweet. Tweet by Vin Armani. Well now, this is interesting. Blocked by Craig Wright for asking legitimate questions he refused to answer. I guess I stumbled onto something over the past couple of days. I now feel completely convinced that what I had assumed was taking place, dot dot dot, the last line is cut off. Tweet by Peter Risen. Being blocked by Craig Wright is a badge of honor that I wear proudly. Tweet by Tomislav Dugonzik. He also blocked me on Twitter. How very Satoshi of him. Another red flag that Craig Wright is not Satoshi Nakamoto like he pretends to be, but just another scammer and patent troll trying to gain influence in the Bitcoin Cash community. We must resist such people. 
tweet by Datalnix. I'm happy to inform the BCH ecosystem that more cooperation is coming soon. End quote. Apparent misrepresentation of academic credentials. Among Wright's lengthy list of claimed accomplishments, there are quite a few academic achievements, including PhDs, that he has used as the basis for his title of doctor. In 2017, he pulled a stunt at a Bitcoin meetup in Zurich where he brought a, quote, wheelbarrow of degrees on stage. Photos of these degrees and certificates were subsequently published on InChain's website, Link. As we can see from this list, Wright's only PhD appears to have been completed in April 2017 at Charles Sturt University, often ranked around number 30 in Australia and number 800 globally, which is where most of his degrees appear to have come from. Wright's now-deleted LinkedIn profile also claimed a PhD computer science 2009-2012 from Charles Sturt University but the school put these claims in question with a media release. Quote, Update. Australian University says Craig Wright did not complete a PhD as claimed. Mashable, December 11, 2015. That PhD in computer science is not listed among his degrees, nor is the master's in systems development that he has claimed. Neither is listed on CSU's alumni education verification site either. That same LinkedIn profile claimed that he'd earned a Doctor of Theology, Comparative Religious, and Classical Studies, 1998-2003, to from, quote, guess. He later stated that his theology studies were through SOAS, University of London's School of Oriental and African Studies. Tweet by Craig Wright. Oh, to the idiots, get your facts right. I did not do theology in London. My statement was that I am enrolled in SOAS. That was in a separate area. I have completed the courses but will graduate when ready. Try to get your facts right. I have been in many universities. Dot, dot, dot. End quote. However, it seems clear from my research that he's never published anything, such as a PhD thesis, through SOAS, as its research archives hold nothing with his name on it. Nevertheless, in 2015, Wright remotely participated in a Bitcoin conference and claimed he had a couple of doctorates. It's quite clear that Wright had given himself the title of doctor and used it for several years before rightly earning it. This media statement issued by CSU further clarified that despite Wright stating he was a lecturer and researcher at the university, quote, between May 2011 and May 2014, Mr. Wright was an adjunct academic at CSU. Adjunct academics undertake unpaid academic work and are not formally employed by the university, end quote. I have been unable to verify Wright's LinkedIn claim that he earned a, quote, Master of Science, MSc, Finance, Quantitative Finance, in 2015 to 2017 through the University of London, presumably through SOAS again. A mashable request for academic records appears to have been unfulfilled. I sent my own request and SOAS replied that I needed written consent from the individual in order to have the information released. This seems like a flaw to me. You'd think that academic institutions would want to help students accredit their academic credentials. Military service. Wright has referred to his time in the military on several occasions. I have looked into the record of his service and the tasks he allegedly performed at that time in order to confirm his claims. 
the earliest record that I've been able to find of Wright referencing his military service in the cypherpunk community dates back to 1996 when Wright added a post to the cypherpunk's mailing list. Quote, The few months I was unemployed after I left the military because of a conflict of interest, I earned money by doing whatever I could get. End quote. In 2008, Wright made a reference to this time in his life on a public mailing list. Quote, in 1998, I started a Bachelor of English, Bachelor of Science, double degree. I dropped out of the University of Queensland in 1992 after my third year. I have a reason for this. I had cancer. I thought that it was better to go back to my studies after I knew I would live. Sorry, but we all have priorities. End quote. Years later, according to the Satoshi Affair, Wright said of his time in the military, quote, they locked me in a bunker and I worked on a bombing system, smart bombs. We needed fast code, and I did that, end quote. I found Wright's claims about his military service intriguing mainly because military service creates a lot of public records. So I strolled on over to the National Archives of Australia to see what information it would release to me. It took several months of painful bureaucratic back and forth but I managed to retrieve 82 out of the 177 pages of documents on file for Wright. They are available here. Link. What do Wright's public military records show? He was in the Australian Air Force Cadets at age 15 in 1986. He applied to the Australian Defense Force Academy to train as a pilot in 87, but was rejected. Oddly enough, the psychologist's report filed with this application is blank. It is possible that the completed one was withheld. He was a student at the University of Queensland from 1988 to 1989. He applied to the Royal Australian Air Force in 1989 and was accepted to a nine-year officer program with a sponsorship to the RAAF undergraduate program to study electrical engineering. The sponsorship offer noted that, quote, should you fail to progress academically for whatever reason, you may be required to apply to repeat the year at your own expense, end quote. He started his first semester in 1990 as an officer cadet. He passed one class, Law of War, in the first semester. Oddly enough, there is no mention of any engineering or math classes, but perhaps these records were withheld. A hard-to-read handwritten letter released by the archives appears to state that, quote, Officer Cadets Bone and Wright were asked to show cause why they should be provided with continued RAAF sponsorship as they had failed semester 1 slash 90, end quote. The slash 90, I'm assuming, means of the year 1990. Wright did send a letter regarding his undergraduate sponsorship standing later that year, but it was withheld by the archives. He went on SLWOP, special leave without pay, on March 15, 1990. He was discharged October 19, 1990 for, quote, reason for. I've not been able to verify what reason for means. It's interesting, to say the least, that this man who claims to be a lifelong academic with more than a dozen degrees appears to have failed out of his first semester in the RAAF, according to these public records. Is it likely that he was given the responsibility to write code for bomb guidance systems as a first-semester cadet? Did he leave the military due to a, quote, conflict of interest? What now? Wright's threats through his London-based lawyer 
against multiple posters may or may not wind their way through the court process. The lawsuit against Wright in federal court in Miami will continue. In fact, Wright recently was scheduled to sit for testimony in London, so we will be interested in learning more about that. I personally am highly doubtful of many of Wright's claims. He's had four years to come forward with proof that he is Satoshi, and I, for one, am not satisfied. On the bright side, it would appear that Wright has painted himself into a corner. He is now the figurehead of a fork of a fork of Bitcoin, operating in a tiny echo chamber that will be incredibly difficult to grow. In fact, it appears that there is a growing movement among exchanges to delist the BSV asset. It will be interesting to see how Craig and co. make their exit. Will it be with a bang or a whimper? Wright thrives on attention, and the unfortunate result of this post is that it is a catch-22. It will bring him more attention, at least temporarily. I believe we'll all be better off if we let this chapter of Bitcoin come to a close. Additional Sources Numerous sources have been reviewed in connection with this op-ed, and many are linked throughout. The lower links to further extended posts and compilations. Andreas Brecken's Cult of Craig compilation, now maintained at craigwright.online and stopcraigwright.com. Bitcoin Wiki's entry on Craig Wright. User Contrarian's plethora of Reddit posts. Jeanald Foucault's compilation of Wright's history. And Nick Kabrilovich's analysis of Hotwire. This is an op-ed by Jameson Lobb. Opinions expressed are his own and do not necessarily reflect those of Bitcoin Magazine or BTC Inc. And there we have it. We have concluded uh, Jameson Lopp's amazing uh, compilation of details um, from Craig Wright's rather long history now in the Bitcoin space, claiming that he is Satoshi Nakamoto. And... Um, I've kind of hit like a whole list of bullet points that I've done while I uh, read through this a couple of times. And um, because there's so many funny things that if his version of it are true, that are really ridiculous. Um, Like like if some of the evidence is actually to be believed, some of the mental gymnastics that you have to do to accept it is just almost hilarious. Um, but I, I will go ahead and put a disclaimer since I am reading something from Bitcoin Ma- Magazine and Jameson Lop is that the following that I am about to state is all my opinion. Um, and they hold this is I am saying nothing about the opinions of Bitcoin Magazine or Jameson Lop here. Uh, Jameson Lop did a very good job of being, you know, very straightforward that I do not believe. I am not satisfied with uh, the, the quote unquote proof that he is Satoshi. And all that good stuff. Um, But I am going to give my view of this whole thing. So, like, there is a a possibility still. Because, you know, essentially we're trying to prove a negative, right? Like, that he is not Satoshi. And a negative is, well, you can't. You can't prove a negative, right? Um, Anybody who, you know, knows logic, you can't prove that something isn't. Um, So maybe, maybe his many mistakes and contradictions that he has you know, publicly made. Maybe he's just a bit of a loud mouth and he just kind of shoots off with his keyboard. Uh, and they're just accidents. Maybe his uh, confident declarations that directly uh, contradict things that Satoshi has said 
Um, his technical choices and reasonings, maybe those are misunderstandings, or maybe he changed his mind. Maybe, maybe he had a, a change of heart about his feelings toward anonymity. You know, he was vehemently against anonymity, supposedly just a couple of, uh, publicly, uh, just a couple of months before he was supposedly Satoshi Nakamoto. Or maybe it was a ruse, maybe it was to throw people off his trail. Maybe he was, maybe his seeming, uh, seemingly being unaware of Bitcoin uh, and then consistently spelling it wrong as late as 2017 was actually just another form of OPSEC. Or maybe, maybe he was living two lives and he didn't even know. We'll get to that one later. I got a really good, I got a really good story about that. So maybe him not mentioning that Satoshi also privately sent some Bitcoin to Mike Hearn in addition to Hal Finney and um, uh, Zuko. Uh, maybe the fact that he privately sent some to Mike Hearn. Maybe he was just trying to respect Mike Hearn's privacy when he said, you know, it was just Zuko and Hal. Maybe he actually did prove his control of the keys to Gavin in private on his own computer without revealing it to anyone else. Maybe his concern over proving his coins publicly because of a security flaw that had been fixed was actually a legitimate reason to continue to claim he is Satoshi, but still not sign anything with the early keys that he says he has and has already proven to other people. Maybe his claims that he did not want attention in his letter espousing that he could not do this anymore and that it's gone too far uh, and that he cannot sign it publicly because he does not want to, he no longer wants to reveal himself to the world, even though that only lasted like a week or two, you know, like maybe that was a good excuse for him to never publicly sign with those keys yet again. Maybe his, uh, maybe his years of clear need for attention following that uh, announcement that he was leaving forever was just another change of heart that he had. You know, everybody gets emotional, and a couple of days later, maybe you, you realize you made a bad decision. Maybe his posting of a signature that was freely available on the blockchain and that anybody can just go grab uh, – and without even giving the document that he supposedly signed, just a piece of it, and then saying this was the one that I signed, which is literally the exact data that you need to prove a signature. You need, you need the public key, the hash, and the data. That's it. That's all you need. He failed to provide those things. Maybe that was like him. Maybe he was like testing us or something. You know, like you, you, could, you could make that argument. Or maybe he didn't realize... No, no, no. If he was Satoshi, you'd have to say that he realizes the importance of that because he had designed a system around proving signatures. So we'll just say it was his way of testing us. Maybe the 2014 blog post at archive uh, at the uh, Internet Archive was edited. Maybe the earlier one, the 2014 one, and the one that included the word cryptocurrency that didn't exist until a year later is actually the real one. And you know, maybe maybe this was a conspiracy to undermine Craig even before anyone knew who he was. Maybe they were just like covering their tracks. They were like, this guy named Craig Wright might expose himself as Satoshi, so we need to go ahead and preempt uh, our discrediting of him. Maybe the backdated PGP keys were just... Um, uh, well, you know, like, there might be a reason to backdate a PGP key and then send it to news organizations. There could be. I can't think of one at the moment, but who knows? Um, maybe in the email thread with Kleiman that uh, 
uh, supposedly came from a server that Craig actually owned. Maybe if you look at that thread, maybe Craig actually did. He was on one server. Maybe he did stop in the middle of that thread, copy the entire conversation and the the, the reply uh, and subject and everything to his new information defense server that did not exist until 10 months later, then replied to Kleiman mentioning Bitcoin, and then copied the entire thread back to the original server and then just continued from there. Maybe that happened. You know, like sometimes I switch to a completely different email service uh, very quickly to reply to an ongoing thread and then switch back. Who knows? People could do that. Maybe his uh, Blacknet paper that was released and submitted in 2001, supposedly with the exact same abstract as the public Bitcoin white paper, was legit. And maybe then he edited a new draft seven years later where he removed a few clarifications, put in some unnecessary words, added a few grammatical errors, and then privately disseminated the draft of that white paper, but then realized that he shouldn't have done those things and reverted it back to the public release. I can see that that's clearly possible. Maybe the fact that he claimed he owned coins in certain addresses, but then some of those owners actually signed messages stating that they did not belong to Craig was just an elaborate way to throw us off his trail. Maybe while Craig was posing as Satoshi, he literally didn't sleep. Maybe he has insomnia. Oh, spoiler alert, by the way, if you haven't seen Fight Club. Maybe he has insomnia like the guy from Fight Club and would actually think that he was going to sleep but became Satoshi Nakamoto, his cypherpunk alter ego, every single night. I could maybe believe that Craig's many public incorrect technical claims are actually just him uh, an elaborate attempt at trolling everybody who thinks he isn't Satoshi. Maybe his walk back, that, uh, the, the claim that Bitmain might have had the key to a particular burn address, is actually a sufficient, sufficient correction to his public statement that proof of burn is a fallacy and that he would demonstrate that he could take any burnt token and spend it. I mean, maybe he was just talking about the one address. And it could be bad with words. Again, he edited and then unedited the white paper. So, you know, maybe uh, the massive multi-million dollar debts from Australia and troubles with the Australian government are completely unrelated. And, you know, because he's Satoshi and he has so much money, he's not really concerned about it. Maybe that insane and ridiculously complex stack of companies, uh, subsidiaries, partner organizations, all that stuff that they have a hand in is totally legit and it's not meant to cover up anything. Maybe Craig just has like He just has like a thing for forming new companies all the time. Maybe he doesn't even realize that publicly declaring himself as Satoshi Nakamoto would have an effect on whether or not anybody cared about the hundreds of patents they're filing. Maybe there's no monetary incentive there. Maybe he just totally was just like, oh, oh, that's that's an interesting side effect, but it is unrelated to why I would do that. Maybe a huge portion of his patents... The, the fact that uh, many of his patents are copies of things that already exist is actually a coincidence because Craig is just so smart that he's inventing things without realizing someone else has already invented them. And maybe Calvin Eyre is just a buddy of his and has no stake in this whole mess at all. And maybe Matthews uh, has actually misconstrued their relationship. Maybe the companies in Chain and CoinGeek 
care so much about the BSV vision that they will just mine indefinitely, even if they just completely run out of money and they have no other motives involved. It's just they want to keep BSV alive and secure. Maybe they actually intend to use the hundreds of patents to build an elaborate, secure, and uh, totally proprietary, uh, fully licensed, decentralized global metanet. Maybe his blocking of the increasingly large community of people who no longer believe his stories, since he won't provide any solid evidence of being Satoshi, is actually his way of just staying focused on his work. And you know, I could even believe that he thinks that the fact that every, almost every one of his claim degrees is either contradicted by the universities in question or seem to be really difficult to find any evidence for is actually inconvenient for him as well. Like everybody else is like, where's the proof? And maybe he's in secret going like, ah, why, why are these universities not sharing my degrees with everyone? Why are they making it so hard to get a hold of? I could, I could see him being frustrated if he has all of those degrees. Maybe the Australian military, the, the, the RAAF, the Air Force and everything was, maybe, they, maybe they're in like a really tight spot and they realized that they desperately needed a first semester failing cadet in order to produce some fast code for their smart bombs. Maybe his threats to sue others recently is actually completely founded and we really should have just trusted his claims from the very beginning because clearly he's very confident about these claims and maybe just maybe and i've heard this claim before and jameson talks about it in his interview with dave and graham on the bitcoin magazine podcast but maybe this is all an extraordinarily complex ruse to discredit himself as like a reverse reverse psychology to expose himself as Satoshi, then appear to be a fraud so that no one would fi ever find out that he really is Satoshi. Or, and hear me out on this one, maybe Craig Wright is just full of shit and can't find a way out of the Grand Canyon of false claims ridiculous statements and shady dealings that he has dug for himself since 2015. Could be the first list, might be the second one. Remember that all things are possible. Satoshi is clearly a very fascinating and intelligent person, so we have no idea. But I personally think, just on the record for this episode, I personally think Craig Wright is actually Satoshi and that this is all the most elaborate ruse ever to discredit himself so that no one would ever believe he was Satoshi because that is the only thing that I could think is Satoshi-level smart to do. No one would ever catch Satoshi if Satoshi came out and then made himself look like an idiot and then, uh, why would, I mean, why would anybody else? I mean, this, it is literally the best plan ever. I'm going to make a movie about it because that sounds awesome. Yeah, so that was my bullet point list of everything uh, and that does, I left out a bunch of the stuff with Calvin Air and the companies and stuff. Uh, the Satoshi Affair um, is, in, is pretty long, uh, and I do not know any of the licensing or anything with that, but it is freely posted, uh, is public online. He, he links to it a couple of different times um, So uh, in, in this, uh, the Bitcoin Magazine article. So I'm going to link to it as well. And... Um, 
Uh, I may look into actually reading it on the show just so that there's an audiobook version of it. I do not know for certain. I have to I have to contact someone about it and see what the licensing rights are for that um, because uh, I have not read it through yet, but all the things that are quoted out of that, it just sounds like it's going to be a really, really fun read. So hopefully I'll get to it soon, um, actually getting to sit down and read it. And uh, I'll let you guys know what I think or what I find out as I uh, kind of look into the uh, all the licensing or permissions necessary to see if that one's readable on the show. It would be a really long one, by the way. It would definitely be one of my long reads, not a quick read. So I hope you guys enjoyed this uh, part one and part two of Jameson Lops. Just a just got to say a huge, huge thank you to Jameson Lop for putting this together. Um, he talks so casually about it on the Bitcoin Magazine podcast, like, yeah, you know, I just started keeping track of it, and, you know, I just reached out and went to the Australian records thing <laughs> uh, to find out, dig into all the military records. Like, it's, it's hilarious how uh, nonchalant he is about all of this work that he put in and the incredible compilation of stuff here. So I just got to say thank you, Jameson Lop. It's absolutely extraordinary that you've put this on. And thank you to Bitcoin Magazine for posting it. Um, Maybe one day we'll get that 40% of stuff that he had to remove because it was more speculation and Jameson's opinion. Um, But uh, uh, if not, this is still absolutely amazing. So uh, thank you to both of those guys. Do not forget to follow Bitcoin Magazine and Jameson Lop so that you do not miss the amazing work that these guys are doing, uh, and I will still post the link for, uh, links from yesterday for the uh, really good follow-up interview that you can do with the Bitcoin Magazine podcast, where they talk to Jameson Lop about this whole mess and you know him gathering all the information and stuff. And then, uh, lastly, uh, if you have not gotten the tenth anniversary edition of the Bitcoin Magazine, it's back in print and it is so good. You got to get your copy. I will be linking to the store so that you guys can do that. Thank you so much for listening. This will conclude our quick read of How Many Wrongs Make a Right. You are listening to the Crypto Economy Podcast. I am Guy Swan. If you're looking to dive into the rabbit hole, you want to figure out where all the best writing and all the best content is to uh, access in audio so that you don't have... You don't have to take all that time necessary to to read everything. There's just so much good stuff. Uh, that's what I'm here for. Uh, feel free to send me suggestions, by the way. Don't forget to tag me on Twitter if you find a really good article. I just found a couple recently um, that I'm really excited about jumping into on topics that a few, a few specifically that we really haven't covered. They're kind of new perspectives on those topics. Um, and I'm really excited about those. So stick with me. Don't forget to subscribe. Share this out to everyone you know who's interested in privacy, who's interested in getting back their sovereignty in the digital age. And if you find a pessimist, if you find somebody who thinks that everything's getting worse on the internet and the censorship is getting worse, send them here because there is a whole new economy being built that isn't, that is, that is solving these problems. And uh, I don't want people to be pessimists when all this amazing stuff is being built and we have a foundation for a future that does solve those problems, that does give us back our privacy, our independence, and our sovereignty. So that is why I'm here. That's the Crypto Economy Podcast. I'm Guy Swan. 
And until next time, take it easy, guys. 